Man, it's so good to be in church together today. If I have not had an opportunity to meet you, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're brand new, um, thank you for being here today. You're actually stepping into a really important series that we're doing, and it's called It's Complicated. And so I just want to say if you are new here or maybe you've missed any of the series, here's what I would ask you to do. I would at least encourage you to go back and watch week one. I think it might be the most important week as we kind of really talked about why we're addressing these things and wanted to share our heart um, as a community as we walk through what are really, let's be honest, some of the most controversial uh, topics that are happening in our culture today. Now let me just say this, we're not doing this series just to be controversial, not trying to stir things up, that's not my heart, that's not who I am, but I'm doing it because I feel like we are all walking through a time in culture where we are confronted with these very challenging issues. And I think a lot of us aren't even really sure what to think or what to believe about them. And so I felt the weight as a pastor to really try to help us as a community walk through them with both truth and grace and see if we can really develop a deeper understanding of how God's heart is toward what his heart is toward us in all of these important conversations. Now, if you haven't been following along, you should know that there is a companion conversation happening to each Sunday, and that is a podcast that we have. And last week, can I just say, y'all sent in a lot of questions. Woo, struck a nerve talking about politics. And so, listen, we spent two hours. You may go, I'm not spending two hours, that's fine. We spent two hours trying to address many of your questions, and they were great questions. You know what, it reminds me that when we talk about complicated matters, most of us want a real simple answer and a clean bow, but that's not, that's not reality. And so I wanna encourage you that if you have any questions from today or anything, you can text complicated to 94,000, you can email us, and we would be glad to dive into it. And so we're gonna pick up that conversation this week as well, addressing today's topic. Now, here's what I wanna say. Today's topic is, uh, I wanna just say, a very sensitive one. I think it's sometimes easy to digress into just political debates about this topic and forget that it really does address real people that have made some maybe really hard decisions that are carrying the weight of that. And so I, I want us to at least recognize that and I wanna approach today's topic with a very sensitive, in a very sensitive way. And here's what I know, that there are um, probably three different types of people represented in this room, in our community today, even as I talk about this, and I wanna just say up front, I recognize that. One, I, I know that there are some of you that when it comes to the topic that we are discussing, which I guess I should tell you if you didn't know, it's abortion. And here's what I know, when it comes to abortion, that for many in the church, this has been like one of their most passionate conversations. That some of you, when it comes to this, there's no bigger conversation when it comes to politics or anything else than abortion. And so for you, some of you might be like, oh, I'm glad we're talking about this. I'm really passionate about it. That's, that's fine. I understand. Then there's another group of people in here that I want to just say that the way things have changed in our culture really over this last year, that, that you have fear about this. That, that maybe for you, the way you view things is you have a fear of we're women losing rights, things we fought for for equality. It almost feels like a step backwards and like oppression. Some of you, I'm going to say because of your cultural view, that's the way you're looking at this conversation. And then there's others of you, and I just want to say perhaps many of you, that when it comes to abortion, that you've had one. And just I want to say this, literally being in the room or watching this online right now, is really uncomfortable. 
you find yourself really nervous and it's hard to even hear this um, topic brought up because of the feelings and the things that you carry. And I just, I want you to know the way we're gonna approach this today is, I've seen in the past, and I understand the church sometimes when it comes to topics like this, um, has sometimes been a whole lot of truth and not a lot of grace. And I want you to hear me if you feel really uncomfortable or if you're in any one of those categories. But we're gonna walk through this and we're gonna talk about the truth of God's word in light of abortion today, but we're also gonna walk through it knowing that God is a good God of grace. And so I just want you to hear that today and, and know that we're gonna walk through it with grace and love if you've, been, if you've had one. And so here's the thing, here's what I'm gonna do. Today, I don't wanna have a political conversation. And I feel like when it comes to abortion, most of the time, it just kind of devolves to, okay, are you pro-choice or are you pro-life? And that's it. It's just, I don't wanna have a political conversation today. What I wanna do is I wanna want encourage us to think a little bit deeper than that. I, I wanna actually dive into the, the subject of life and the value of life in regards to how culture sees things, how should I as a Christ follower see things. And so I don't want, if you've just got a political camp and you always have lined in this because of whatever, I'm gonna ask you to just kinda put that aside for a moment. I, I, wanna, I wanna bring two perspectives today as we talk about this subject. The two perspectives, one is gonna be scriptural. I, I told you when we did this series that my role is I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to answer this question, what does the Bible say about abortion? And we're gonna do that in the, the second half. The first half, what I wanna do is I want to try to address this subject by talking about the cultural worldview when it comes to matters like abortion. How, how does culture, what is the narrative that we hear that really has become the basis or the framework for understanding topics like abortion in our culture today. And in order to understand this, in order to understand Western thought, and we're part of the West, okay? Western civilization. In order to understand Western thought, we're gonna have to go back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and we're gonna have to start from there and work our way forward. So I have a few tools here that are gonna help me on this. And I wanna start first with the scientific revolution. Now, the scientific revolution um, were things that in the 16th and 17th century where everything really changed. In fact, the world that we have today, we can really look back and go is because of uh, thought and technology and everything that developed in the world of science. Okay, from Copernicus all the way to uh, Newton, this was the scientific revolution, and it got everybody and all our scientists thinking in terms of science and in terms of scientific method and, and what is natural and material and everything that we can measure that is physical, okay? That, that was the scientific revolution. Now, what came out of the scientific revolution around the same time, 17th century and 18th century, was something called the Age of Enlightenment. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with these or you kind of are just flashing back to memories in high school learning about them, but the Age of Enlightenment was kind of the, what, what came alongside of the scientific revolution were all the philosophers. It, it was all the, the people that were rationalized and beginning to talk about liberty and progress and rights and all that came out of the um, Age of Enlightenment. Now, out of the Age of Enlightenment, came one figure, in fact, he's kind of the, the founder of really a lot of thought in Western um, thought and during the Age of Enlightenment, was a guy named Rene Descartes. Maybe you've heard of him. You ever heard of, have you ever heard of Descartes, right? Okay, he's a philosopher. And here's what he did. He kind of put forward this idea, this, this thought, that you and I are comprised of two different substances. 
okay? That, that here's what we're made of. He, he came up with this dual kind of perspective of the mind and the body. He said that we all have a body, right? We understand that. But, but, but that's not all you are. You're not just a body. You're also a mind. And they're separate. And he said, here's what he said. These two separate realities of us, of humans, are separate altogether and can coexist separately. You might go, how in the world does that work? I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll, let me explain. Okay. Now, Descartes is, is famously known for a, a quote that you surely have heard. You've heard this before. His quote was this. I think, maybe help me if you know it, therefore I, yeah, so you've heard it. That's, that's Descartes. Now, if you understand where this comes from, so what he's saying is, I exist because I can think, not because I just have a body. Now, here's what's kind of, um, I guess, a little bit ironic. Because this framework that I'm going to talk about is what undergirds all Western thought today when it comes to most of the topics that we're addressing in this. And oddly enough, Descartes, when he came up with this idea of your split, your mind, and your body, what he was doing was he was trying to refute all of the irreligious people that came out of the scientific revolution. We have all of these scientists who are now atheists who say, I don't believe in the existence of God or anything that's immaterial. And, and Descartes goes, whoa, whoa. No, 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 the mind, the personal identity, that's, that's different than my body, but it's just as real, and you can't tell me. And so what happens is that through um, his original writings and thoughts in the 1600s, what we, what we, we began to go down a path where there was a massive split in Western thought. A split. As he split you in two, culture began to split in two. Now, along comes a, a theologian. This is what I want to show you today. A theologian named Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century. And he kind of came up with an illustration to really talk about the split when it comes to our culture. And this illustration really helped me begin to kind of unpack or understand where we've landed as a culture today when it comes to these issues. And here's what I want to show you. This theory that was put forth originally by Descartes is actually the framework for really everything that is being talked about in culture today and all the conversations we're gonna have. Even racism, sexuality, and gender can be traced back to this idea of this theory that Descartes did. Now, Francis Schaeffer, he wasn't trying to describe what Descartes did, but he actually gave us an illustration of, and he says this about all of us, of a two-story building, okay? This is Francis Schaeffer. And, and, he, and he showed that there's a, a split, okay? This is, we're, we're gonna talk about us. And again, just bear with me. You're like, what does this have to do with abortion? We're gonna get there. Just bear with me, okay? Okay, he, he talked about this idea that there's a two-story building that represents us, okay? In the bottom portion of the story, right, or the building, is the body. The body's in the lower half, Okay? And this is the, the portion that represents really, um, here, here's what it represents, things like the physical, right? You have a physical body, I have a physical body, the physical nature, okay? It has to do with um, anything that is, that is tangible, it's tactile, it's physical, it's your body, my body, it's real, it's in nature, okay? This is, what we know of this is from fact, okay? So this is science, lives here, 
That what we know of our bodies and our existence is fact because of science, what we know. And what this led to is what we know of today is modernism or modernity. Maybe you've heard of that term. We talked about it when I did a series called Origins a long time ago. But uh, it's this idea of everything in our world we understand through the lens of the physical. Okay? Now, Francis Schaeffer helping us understand uh, really where Western thought was going paints a beautiful picture of what Descartes said in this mind-body dualism. Now, in the upper story, okay, this is the mind. This is, now, what, what is it in the upper story that helps us understand the mind? Um, this would be anything that is metaphysical. Okay, um, spiritual things. Okay, can be metaphysical. Um, emotions, metaphysical. We can't see all this, but here's what we know. We know love is real, even though we can't maybe tangibly, like, this, you know, we can't show it up in a map and understand it in a physical nature. So this is, the mind covers the metaphysical. What else does it cover? Um, values, right? We all have values. You have things that you value. I have things that I value. They're not always the same thing. But but where do we get these values? Well, these values are not something that is we can understand through nature, material, but culturally we have values. The fact that we're talking about all of these topics would tell us that there are things that we have we value. By the way, a lot of social and, and cultural values change over time. This is concrete, this is relative. Facts is objective, right? Values relative. By the way, in academic circles, this is known as the fact-value split, okay? And then what, do we, what did this lead to? This led to postmodernism. My guess is that you've heard of uh, postmodernism before, right? This is the idea that we have in thought was we say the physical isn't everything. We all recognize there's something else. And so what, what developed out of this is a, a, the term that is used and, and I, I really want us to understand this before we go into all the rest of our conversations. Let me erase that. Personhood theory. If you take notes, I'd write that down. Personhood theory. This is what, this is what Descartes was recommending. He was talking about where does a person come from? How do you make up a person? Made up of the body and made up of the mind. Separate, both important, to a person. Let me, let me um, I describe it this way. I like to put things in terms that we can remember. So this is my Dr. Seuss version of it. And that's this. I would say personhood theory is a dual view of you. Okay, you understand. I just want you to understand that very basic thing. Personhood theory is this dual view of you. It's that you are made up of two separate parts, the mind and the body. They're separate. They're not necessarily connected. And some things are developed in the mind and other things are developed in the physical nature. Now, this is gonna be a really important thing for you to understand as we get into later weeks. But it actually matters in regards to this conversation. Now, Descartes wasn't the only one. You had people like Locke and Hume. You probably heard of those philosophers. They developed even further along this idea of personal identity. Understanding our personhood. Understanding our identity. Now, why is all this so significant? Because our cultural worldview, even today, separates. What does it do? It separates the mind from the body. Or it separates the person from the body. Well, that makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference. 
If you understand personhood theory, you'll understand culturally why we understand what we do and why we behave the way we do when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, when it comes to all these subjects. Now, in regards to abortion, that's what we're here to talk about. I, I would argue that personhood theory actually has shaped the laws of our land and the thought process, the worldview that most of us have. Is by separating out the mind or the person from the physical body, it has actually done a lot to shape the way we approach topics like abortion. Um, and I'll give you a great example of this. Where the, the legal argument comes when it, when it comes to abortion, it, it's the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Now, I want to read to you a little bit of the 14th Amendment so you can see. This is the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. It says this. All persons, and I should have highlighted this, born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge these privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So if you're born in a state, you need to recognize nationally that you have rights. Okay, that no state can infringe upon. That's what he's saying. Then it says this, nor shall any state deprive any what? Everybody say this out loud. Any, okay, I want us to see this. Any person of what? Of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any what? Person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, the 14th Amendment, and some of you might be familiar with it, but The 14th Amendment was actually a group of amendments that were all put in the Constitution within five years, which is pretty rare. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment were all kind of lumped together. And just, and some of you know this, because some of you know this portion of history because it applied to you. But the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, do you know why they were added to the Constitution? They're added to the Constitution because black people in our country did not receive equal rights and were not considered full persons. They were not considered full persons. And so because of that, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were all added to the Constitution. Now, why, why is that important? Because the same idea of personhood shows up when it comes to abortion. Now, in 1970, there was a famous case that was... Um, that was uh, a famous case that was kind of put forth a lawsuit um, out of Texas, and one that you're all probably familiar. It's a landmark case in this conversation of Roe versus Wade. It was uh, 1970 that the lawsuit was filed. It did not reach the Supreme Court or make a decision until 1973. Many of you are aware of that. Okay, now, why are we talking about personhood? Because to understand this lawsuit, you actually do have to understand this conversation of personhood. Now, it, Roe versus Wade, in the decision that came out that really said that someone's rights cannot be infringed even at the state level so that nationally it's protected. Again, I read to you about the 14th Amendment. Um, in that decision, I want you to hear something that the Supreme Court Justice in their ruling said, okay? And here's, here's something that they said. They said this, and this was them trying to make this really difficult decision. They said, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. So the Supreme Court saying, whoa, we're not going to make that decision. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology 
are unable to arrive at any consensus. They can't agree. The judiciary, that was the Supreme Court, in this point, in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. So here's what, this was part of their decision. They said the question as to when life begins is so confusing that medicine and philosophy and theology can't agree. And so we're not going to take any position on when life begins. Now, this was in 1973. Here's what's interesting. Since then, almost universally, it is accepted by medicine, philosophy, and theology when life begins. It's interesting that this is what was stated back in 1973. Today, what I'm saying, it's not even really a question as to when life begins. It is pretty much universally held by all the disciplines that life begins at conception. That the moment an egg is fertilized, that we have everything we need for life. Okay, so what does that mean? That there's, in fact, science has shown that the moment that an egg is fertilized, that there is like reactions that happen and light goes, there's chemical reactions. And here's what you have. You have a molecular structure that is actually different than that of the mom. You, you have everything you need for life to exist with living cells, all of the DNA, the chromosomes, every bit of genetic material you need to fully develop into a full-grown human being exists in the womb without any need from external sources to help it along. It's not even debated. In fact, um, there was a grad student in 2018. Um, his name is Stephen Andrews Jacobs, and he was going to the School of Law at the University of Chicago in 2018. And part of his grad um, program and part of his thesis was he wanted to really ask this question. Here was this, he did a study. When does human life begin? And he sent out tens of thousands of questions to people all over the place that they could participate if they wanted to by sending back their answers. And he sent this out and nearly um, 3,000 people participated in this question, okay? And he sent this out to tens of thousands. And of the 3,000 or so people that participated, 81% said they trust biologists to answer this. If we're going to say, when does life begin? Bio, life, people who study life, we're going to say it's the scientists. Okay, that's cool. So what did he do? He sent that same question out to biologists, tens of thousands of them. Over 5,500 biologists self-reported. So they wrote back in themselves, okay? And here's what they said. They participated. They said 95% claimed life begins at fertilization. What am I saying? I'm saying today, this is not the question. We do not question whether a living cell inside of a, an egg that's been fertilized, a zygote, we do not question whether or not it is alive. We do not question whether or not it is a human life. That's not the question that's in this debate. It's not, is this a human life? It's, is this a human person? That's actually where the debate is. And so much so, it was part of the debate in 1973. Because when that was brought up, because we know that the 14th Amendment, that no person should be infringed upon their right to life, when that was brought up, here's what the uh, Supreme Court said. 
in their 1973 um, statement that they released, they ruled that the word person in the 14th Amendment does not include the unborn. So this is legally how we got here. They said, wait a minute. These amendments are to protect equal rights for all persons. However, the Supreme Court said in 1973 that those who are unborn are not yet a person. Why why does this matter? Because I'm going going to go back to this. Hundreds of years before, personhood theory started this split in Western thought and social sciences that said, hey, we don't know when a developing embryo or fetus becomes an actual person. We're not even questioning, is it a human life? The question is, is it a human person? And so the real question that we have today is when? When does a human life become a human person? If it's not with the body, but it's with the mind, when? And so here's all, I've heard all of these, and I bet you've heard all of these same arguments, right? Okay, maybe it's when there's a heartbeat. Maybe it's when there's neural activity in the brain. Maybe it's when they have the sensory capability of feeling pain. Maybe it's when there's a level of consciousness. Maybe it's when, and here's what some scientists and bioethicists have said, maybe it's when they have a desire or a wish to live. When do you become a person? Well, when you have a desire to want to live. That's that's, that's what what scientists and bioethicists are saying. I'm not, in fact, there are currently plenty of scientists and bioethicists that are actually saying this goes beyond the nine months. In fact, there's, there's a bioethicist named Jeff Harris who kind of laughs at the idea that nine months development is enough to make a person. So it doesn't matter if they're born or not. Nine months isn't enough. In fact, um, I want you to hear this quote. Okay, he's a bioethicist. Here's what he said. Non-persons or potential persons cannot be wronged in this way because death does not deprive them of anything they can value. You don't have values because you're not a person. So if they cannot wish to live, they cannot have that wish frustrated by being killed. So if you can't wish to live, then it doesn't matter if as society we kill you because you can't wish to live. Now, this we think of in terms of those that are unborn. I can think of a lot of people that are alive today that would struggle with the cognitive ability to do this. By the way, the same personhood theory is what is also being used with euthanasia, eugenics, of those who are disabled, saying, oh, we could take that, we can end their life because they can't, they don't have the capacity. This, this is where we are. These are our scientists. I'm just saying, this is where we are today. Now, maybe some other scientists you've heard of, um, have you ever heard of James Watson, Francis Crick? I talked about them during Origin series. Um, they were back in the 50s where they were the co-finders, I say finders, not founders, of the double helix in the DNA, really attributed to understanding molecular biology, m- maybe advanced things more than anything else. Um, James Watson said this, okay? said, I think we ought to wait till three days after a baby is born to determine whether or not we allow it to live because some genetic defects won't show up until then. It's nice it's born, but we, we don't know. And if it has genetic defects, then it probably we, it shouldn't live. That could be anything. Club feet, cleft lip. I mean, if it has any defects, then it doesn't have a right to live. This is, this is our science, right? And, and so much so, his um, partner, 
Francis Crick. I want you to hear what he said. This is what he said. Francis Crick said, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment. And if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to life. You know what, I, I, I just wanna say this. I hope we don't end up with a society where you have to pass a test in order to stay living. I mean, this is where personhood theory is going. This is, this is the direction that it's been, and this is, for a long time, this is the direction we've been moving. Here's what I'm saying. In our field of science, social sciences, we cannot agree. There is no objective way of knowing when a human life in development becomes a human person. We can't agree. By the way, you might note that's why we have so many different laws in different states. In some places, you could have an abortion all the way up until delivery. Some, they say you can't have a late-term abortion. You can't have it in the third trimester or the second trimester or after a heartbeat. Why? Because we cannot agree. We all agree that it's a human life. What we can agree on, according to our scientists today, we can agree on is when that human life becomes a human person. This is the debate and the framework that's actually underlying the conversation that is happening at the legal level and the cultural level. And I would argue and say this, every bioethicist and scientist that is throwing their their opinion, their non-objective opinion as to when someone becomes a person is doing so not with science. There's zero science. But we have scientists and bioethicists that are Coming in and going, well, I think it's then, and I think it's three days after they're born, and I think it's up to this point. Zero science, but we've got an opinion because it's now become relative. And so ultimately where we've landed is this. We cannot say for sure the unborn is a person, and therefore we do not legally protect the unborn because they're not a person, and the 14th Amendment would protect them if they were. That's the cultural argument. I'm not talking about women's rights. I'm not talking about uh, autonomy. I'm, not talk- I'm, I'm just talking about the big cultural worldview that underlies all of this. And there's something interesting I, I noticed. Um, our family would go to Florida almost every year. The last several years, we would stay on this island in Florida. It's a beautiful beach island. And depending on what time of the year we would go, remember we'd show up. And I remember the first time we ever went, we stayed at we were right near this beach, and we would go to the beach, and as we'd hang out there, um, we would see these areas kind of back in the sand that were marked off with stakes and ribbons all around them with signs posted. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever gone to the beach? you ever seen it? And there are these signs posted that said, according to Florida law, Florida statutes, you are not allowed to mess with the nest and the eggs of the sea turtles. You've seen that, right? The sea turtles. And sea turtles are protected. Sea turtles are endangered. And so you go to the beach. If you ever see kind of an area marked off with a sign, do not mess with it. Do not touch it. Because if you do, you're violating law. You can be prosecuted for it because they're sea turtles. What I found fascinating was I looked at the law that we have for sea turtles. And here's what we have. Florida statutes restrict the take, possession, disturbance, mutilation, Destruction, selling, transference, molestation, and harassment of marine turtles, nests, or eggs. According to the Florida Federal, uh, Statutes Federal Endangered Species Act of 
I almost lost it. I went, hold on, hold on, hold on. This, I'm just trying to understand this from a logical argument. Listen, if you have a political one way or the other, I'm not trying to trigger you. I just want you to think a little bit. You tell me in 1973, we determined legally, according to the Constitution, that an unborn child is not a person, therefore it cannot be protected. But we said, we know what's in the egg of a sea turtle. It's an actual sea turtle, and to touch the actual egg would be violating the law. This happens at the exact same year. Wow, here's what I wanted to point out. There's some massive inconsistencies in this cultural worldview. Massive inconsistencies. But I know that's not what we're here for, and so I wanna to turn to the Bible now. What does the Bible have to say? Now, let me just say this. The Bible does not speak directly to the act of abortion. That wasn't really kind of, they didn't have methods, they didn't have things back at the time, so it didn't. However, the Bible does speak to the value of life. It does speak to a, a, quite a bit about life. And this is where we wanna dive into this, this question. Now in Genesis chapter one, we get this narrative of God, the author of life, creating all living things. What did God create? He created plant life, and he created marine life, and he created bird life, and he created animal life. And in all that God created, it said he was good. And when he got to mankind, now I understand that if you're here and you have a more of a scientific bent, and you're like, well, I just believe that we evolved, then we're gonna, we're gonna um, have some differences in this perspective, I understand. But when it comes to humans, mankind, God paused and said, oh, hold on. I'm gonna do something a little different. This is according to the biblical narrative. In fact, Genesis 1, verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own what? Come on, we can do better than that. Some of you already checked out because you don't like this. We got through all that. We're not the Bible part, all right? You got through my science lecture and all that. Now we're at the Bible part, okay? So God created mankind in his own. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them, okay? So here's the first thing that we learn is that humans, right, we are actually created in the image, another word for that is the persona of God, the personal character. Whatever it is about humans, God said, I'm going to take some of my, my personal creative ability, my mind, my understanding, and I'm going to put it in males and females. I'm going to create them, and he did so in the image. But it's not just, it's not just our bodies that mattered. It was more than that. It wasn't just the mind, it was all of it. In fact, Genesis 2, 7 says this. It says, um, go on to the next. Then the Lord God formed. I love this picture. Because in Genesis 1, you get a whole lot of God speaking. But I love Genesis 2. It kind of dives in a little deeper. It says, but then God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a what? Everybody say this, a living being. Here's what we need to understand. From the beginning, when God created us, he formed the body. It's important. Then he breathed his breath, his spirit into him, and that brought him to be a living being. That Actually, it wasn't separate, but it was together. And here's what I want to I show you. This is, this is my take on this. this is, if this is personhood theory, then let me show you what I believe and what I would maybe describe as biblical personhood. Biblical personhood looks like this. That's you. And you have a body, a soul, if I can spell. Body, soul, and spirit, all one. 
This is biblical personhood. It's this idea that you are comprised of body, soul, and spirit, and that they're not separate. I don't care what Descartes says. They're not split. In fact, because you are made in the image of God, and what we know of a triune God, we even know throughout scriptures, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're three separate, but they're really all one. That there is this uniting of them. And listen, this separates the body and says that this is just matter that doesn't matter. That's what science says. It's matter that doesn't matter. And I would argue and say, no, your body does matter because God formed it with his hands because he created you and he put his image on you. And you, it's your body, soul, and all spirit combined that reflect the image of God. There's not a dual view of you. It's just a unified view of you. And if you think, if you think about this when it comes to the gospel, this is really important. You don't remove the body. The body matters. The physical body matters to the gospel. Why? What do we know? The gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us, he died a physical death with his body on a cross. And they took his body when it was lifeless and put it inside of a tomb. And on the third day, God raised him back to life in bodily form. That is critical to the good news. The gospel is the physical body. So your physical body matters as much as your mind and your soul matters. And to separate the two is actually to not understand. And this is, by the way, you're going to see when we talk about the other topics, you're going to see why this is a completely different than the cultural worldview. It says that your body matters and what you do with your body matters. But the real question that we ask biblically is, is the unborn a person? And I'm going to go through several scriptures real fast. And, and I wanted to show you collectively in this question, is the unborn a person? And we're going to see from Old Testament to New Testament, everybody seemed to think so. Jeremiah, the prophet, um, when God called him into ministry, his words were this. He said to God uh, about God's response to him, before I formed you in the womb, what did God say to Jeremiah? He said, I, I knew you. Look at this, before you were born. I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In other words, I have purpose for you before you were born. Before you were born. I knew you. How can you know someone that's not a person if they're not, they haven't existed? Because God knew us. Because every part of your life had purpose before you were born. Isaiah said basically the same thing. The prophet Isaiah said it this way. Good. He said, listen to me, all you distant lands. Pay attention, you who are far away. The Lord called me, what? Before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by my name. He, he knew me before I was born. Now, this is the Old Testament. New Testament, the Apostle Paul, I love what he says in Galatians 1. He said, but even before I was born, God did what? God chose me, and he what? He called me by his marvelous grace. God knew me. This is Paul saying this. How about John the Baptist, right? We all know the story maybe of John the Baptist when his parents couldn't get pregnant, and then finally, God did a miracle. And when God spoke to Zechariah, his father, he said something to him about John. He said this, you have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. Some of you were like, okay, count me out. But then he says, but look at this. This is so important. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Wait, 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 you're, you're going to tell me that this fetus, this embryo, is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was when Mary showed up pregnant with, okay, let's talk about that. When Mary shows up pregnant with Jesus, 
I have a really hard time, and I'm a Jesus follower. If you're not, that's fine. I have a really hard time thinking Jesus isn't a person until he was born. Jesus existed before he ever entered the womb. Jesus existed. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He was there when all life was created. And so just this idea is, well, okay, he wasn't born. He's not outside the womb, so he's not a person. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, a problem with that. How about David? I, I'll end with this last one with David. This is probably the most well-known passage when it comes to this conversation. But I love the way David says it beautifully in Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. God was there. You saw me before I was born. And every day of my life was recorded in your book. Look at this. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. You know what that speaks of? It speaks of purpose. It speaks of God involved in the process. It speaks that God knew what he was creating when he made David. And listen to me. God knew what he was creating when he made you. He knew the purpose that he had for you. You're not an accident. You're not a cosmic accident. But do you have purpose? And so we ask this question, is the unborn a person? And here's my answer to that. Every human life is made in the persona or the image of God. Every human life. I'm using these terms on purpose. Every human life has a God-given purpose before they are born. And therefore, I would say every human life in the womb is a human person. It's a human person. I'm not, I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about what the government affords us and what rights and choices and all that. I, I'm talking about based on the Bible. Based on the Bible, when I look at God as the author of all life, I can only land, this isn't even a political thing, I can only land in this thought that God is for life because God is the author of life. God is pro-life because God is the author of life. And everything that God creates has value and it matters. Listen, my goal here today is not to trigger anyone that has a political view that sees otherwise when you think of it politically. And I imagine there's some of you that might listen to this and you go, I agree with the Bible, but politically I'm over here. That, that's not what I'm here to talk about. And here's, here's what I understand is some of you right now, there's all these circumstantial arguments going off in your mind. They're just blowing up in your mind. And I understand. I, I, maybe you go, oh, seems like what you laid out was real simple. This isn't simple stuff. It's complicated. And some of you right now, you got all these, if you're thinking of all these circumstantial arguments, you're like, what about rape? What about incest? And what about, uh, uh, what about mother's life? Is it risk? And what about autonomy? And what about women's rights? In all of these, this is complicated. What about the government? Should the government be allowed? Um, I, I don't have time to address all of these things today, and I understand they're real, I, especially um, in the case where a mother's life is at stake and maybe is not able to even um, address that or deal with that. And there's so many, there's so many heart-wrenching stories. Can I just tell you, when I hear of a, of a young girl that's raped and becomes pregnant and has to figure out what to do in that situation at a young age and and maybe they're not a believer or follower of Jesus. I look at all of these situations and I just have, my heart breaks. I, I look at all of these things culturally and I know that it's complicated. And so I, we are going to address 
if you have questions about those things, and I imagine, I imagine many of you do, okay, um, send them in. Send them in. This week on the podcast, we're going to have a, a lady in our community who has had an abortion and walked through that process, and she's going to come and bring her perspective and her story to our podcast this week. And I would encourage you, if you have questions about all of these, these are complicated matters. They're not easy. But what I wanted us to really understand as a community is that this is not, this is not just a political issue. This is a personal issue. This is a real issue that affects real people, real women that um, have made, me, made really hard decisions for whatever reason in their life and, uh, and carry things with it. And I, I want us as a community to understand that. I, I came across a, a study that really gave some interesting statistics um, of what women face when sometimes you know, a surprise pregnancy or not, seems like it's the wrong time or, or maybe it's medical things and it's really challenging. But there was a study that was done by Medical Science Monitor a while ago and, I, and I, this just kind of brought the reality of this to me. The 64% of women, these are all women who have had abortions that the way they responded to these questions, 64% said they felt pressured by others to have an abortion. Like, wow, that's crazy. Um, 50% said they felt abortion was morally wrong when they had the abortion. So I imagine the conflict that many women have had where they're making a decision, but they know that maybe inside they feel like morally it's wrong, but they maybe don't see any other option. Wow. Um, 78% indicated they felt guilty after the abortion. What is often not talked about is the trauma that one carries after an abortion, even if they elect to do it. And if you talk to someone, we have several women in our church, I've talked, you talk to them, you, you will hear about this very real trauma that um, 56% reported feeling sadness and loss after it. And this one, um, 54% said they were not sure at the time that they did it. 54% said they were not sure. I am. Um, I came across another study that brought the reality of this to, to me in a church like ours, a community like ours, uh, that said that four out of 10 women in this study that said um, they had an abortion said they go to church. And so here's what I understood. I understood there's probably a lot of women in our church that have had one. And I just imagine many of you that maybe feel the weight of that. And I wanna say it's maybe not just the woman, but it could be the woman and her husband, and maybe they made that decision together that you feel the loss and the grief and sometimes the shame that goes with it. I, w I wanted to read something. I had, when we started this series, I had a lady um, approach me that knew we were gonna talk about this, and she said, I, I would like to share my story with you. And it was her story of having an abortion. And I said, please, please send it in. And her story gripped me. I'm only gonna just read a little portion of what she said. It was a really powerful story. It moved me. Every time I read it, like, I was almost moved to tears every single time I read her story. And she talks about how her and her husband were um, young, got married young. She was in college, trying to make it. And, uh, and they got pregnant. It wasn't planned. It was unexpected. And she had family members who told her, hey, listen, you you could have an abortion. This is maybe not a good time. It's college and money. How are you going to figure this out? 
and um, and so she ended up making an appointment, and she went and saw someone, and they told her the same thing, and so she ended up going through with it and having an abortion. And what she described after that was carrying what I what I could only say is trauma. She literally said every time she heard the word abortion, that it literally would cause a physical reaction that she felt grief and she felt pain and shame for years because of that one decision and it wasn't until she was invited to a conference that was all about and she wanted to use her situation story of helping women deal with post-abortion trauma and it was there that she experienced something really powerful by the grace of God and I want to read to you just some of her words She said, I'd been deceived like Eve. I'd engaged in dialogue, rationalized a decision, and bit an apple called, it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Then my eyes were open to what I had done. First, I I tried to cover it up by hiding in shame. Then I tried to make up for it in my own strength. But having three babies didn't make it better, and neither did my good works. Nothing I could do would bring back what I gave up. In our final session, we pondered Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. We were invited and encouraged to grieve the loss of our babies. In that safe space, in the presence of others who were walking wounded, grief and tears flowed in abundance as God's presence filled the room. He'd forgiven me years ago, Today, I forgive myself. She said it was October 1st, 1994, 12 years to the exact day that she had the abortion. And she said, almost everything I think, feel, and do, and say going forward will be influenced by this day, the day God healed my soul. And hearing her story brought to me the reality of this for a lot of women in our church, and maybe not in our church, but people that you know. And... I, w- I want to say this with all of the sensitivity of truth and grace and say I believe according to scripture that it is morally wrong to have an elect- electively choose to have an abortion. And I know there's questions about the mother's life and all of that. We'll talk about all of those and I have thoughts on those things, I think, and just in general. But here's what I also want to say. One of the things that I love about God is that he is such a gracious and a good God that he can redeem every situation and every decision. And I believe, listen to me, I believe he redeems those little ones that were lost. I really believe that, me personally. I believe that one day we're gonna see millions and millions of persons in eternity that we never got to know here on earth because God is a good God and redeems them. And here's what I want you to know. And I believe that abortion is not an unpardonable sin. I feel like sometimes that's been the perspective and that's almost been the way it's been presented in the church. It's not. God's grace is bigger. God, God can heal you. If you would take in this moment, maybe some of you, this is gonna be a healing moment today. It was really hard to hear us talk about it but maybe this is what it'll take for healing. And maybe there's a grieving process. Maybe there's a recognizing, even if you made a decision, there's recognizing what you lost. There's recognizing that. And so today, I just just wanna take a moment, if we could, as we close in prayer. And I think we all, listen, I don't care how you feel about this politically. I want you to recognize that there are people around you, there's people in this room 
that are feeling the weight of this. And the church doesn't jump on people that feel the weight of their sin. The church jumps in to help and pull people from that, to show them Jesus and the grace that Jesus has given. And we show them love and we surround them. So I don't want you, listen, and I want you to hear this. And the sad reality is there are a lot of single women that are in the church and when they get pregnant, they do not even feel, they feel like they'll be judged by the church to even say something. So they go run off and have an abortion where maybe they don't even want to have one, but they can't handle the condemnation and the weight. This is not gonna be a church like that. We're a church that talks about the grace of Jesus. We'll talk about the truth of God's word, but we're a church that extends grace, that we wanna extend hope. And I want, you, I want you to hear this. Like if you find yourself in a situation, come see us. If there's a financial way that we can help, we're gonna do our best to help you. We wanna, we wanna get you support, we wanna get you whatever, but do not feel like you will be condemned. You will not. But we're gonna walk through this as a community with grace, amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for your grace in my life. I don't have a leg to stand on if it's not for your grace, and none of us do. I pray, God, that when it comes to a sensitive matter like this, that none of us would take a self-righteous political position over seeing the hurt and the heartbreak of people. And God, I pray right now over, over the women, I mean the men too, that have been part of maybe a decision that many of them might regret today. It's brought a lot of pain and a lot of shame. And God, one thing I know is that you sacrifice your life so that we could have grace. And I pray, God, for a, a healing work to begin right now. I pray, God, in this place, those that are impacted or have loved ones that are impacted by this, that I pray, God, that they would know that you're a, a God full of love. We know the truth of your word, but you're a God that when we all mess up, that you're a God that is ready to forgive us when we confess and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to wipe the slate clean. And so, God, I pray for grace today. I pray for those that maybe need to grieve and those that, Lord, maybe, maybe need to um, find healing in your presence. I pray that today would be the beginning of a new future. And, God, I thank you that you're a God that is so good and so big that you redeem even man's worst mistakes. God, in it, I just believe that one day we're gonna meet so many people that, that you love, that you're such a gracious God that you redeem their story. And God, you can redeem our story. And so thank you for the grace today to walk through this as a community. Lord, we love you. We honor you today in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Come on, let's thank him for his grace today. Hey, listen. I just want to say I understand, and, and, and this is a, a really heavy subject. If you're a part of this community and you feel the weight of this and you want somebody to stand with you, we as a, a church and staff and pastors, we would love to. You can text us. You can text XPRAY to 94000. Let us know. We would be glad to meet with you and, and connect with you. And then um, I wanted to let you know, if, if this was something, even what we talked about over here that intrigues you, uh, if this is a conversation, and for the rest of the series, probably the book I could not recommend more is a book called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. Fantastic book 
that um, really helped me understand the cultural conversation going on with this. And so we, we have information at our next steps and out at the, um, at the shop where you can get information about books like this. Thanks so much for tuning in to this message. I hope that it encouraged you and inspired your faith. If God is doing something in your life, would you take a moment and let us know? We wanna connect with you and we wanna be able to pray for you. All you have to do is shoot us an email to hello at the x.church or you can always send us a DM on one of our social media platforms. And if you know somebody that would also be encouraged by this very message, why not take a moment and just share it with them right now? And as always, I want to say thank you to every single person who so generously financially supports this ministry so we can continue to get messages like these out to people all over the world. We believe God is building something special and you're a significant part of it. Until next time, have a great day.